Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 45 of Unknown Orbits, a can of paint by A.E. Van Vogt. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm Patrick Baird. Today's story is not as well known as A.E. Van Vogt's other works, though it has been anthologized a few times. The story is about the first man to successfully land on Venus, looking outside of his spacecraft and finding a cube-like object on the ground with a handle on it. He has no idea what it is. He's curious, so he goes out and he picks it up. It says to him telepathically, I contain paint. He drops the cube and rainbow-colored paint splashes on him, and he goes back inside his ship. He soon notices that the splash of paint is starting to spread across his skin, and he can't wipe it off. He tries every solvent he can. No matter what he does, the paint keeps spreading because it's generating itself. It's growing and slowly covering his body, which brings up another problem for him as he's starting to feel hotter and hotter because the paint is also a very good insulator. So his body heat's being trapped in. And if he doesn't do something about it, he's going to end up dying of heat stroke. So at this point, he realizes that the paint was a perfect paint. This is a discussion we've had before as kind of a writing prompt, taking an item and saying, well, what would make this item perfect? And then what are the consequences of this perfect item? That's an interesting twist on the problem-solving story. Did we have a show on John Thomas's cube? No, we did not. Not yet. That's a story about a perfect cube. And there are a couple others which we won't go into now. So his next step is to get on the radio, and he manages to contact the Venusians and ask them about this paint. They explain that the paint was really a test they created to test the intelligence of other species. If he finds a way of surviving this splash of paint, then he and other humans will then be allowed to visit Venus. They cut off radio communication and refuse to speak to him any more than that. So that sets the problem. He's dealing with the perfect paint. It's perfect because it comes in any color or all colors. It applies itself to the surface by spreading out. If it's damaged, it can repair itself, and it's a good insulator which is great when you paint it on a house, but it's not good when it's spreading across your body. Right. He takes another look at the cube of paint to try to find any more information, and it telepathically tells him its ingredients, which include liquid light. And the directions say that this can be removed with the application of darkness paste. However, it's another Venusian invention, so he doesn't have it. He has to find a different solution. Having set the problem... 
the story jumps ahead to him in space traveling back to Earth so we can just get this isolated punchline to the story. I admire this in the writing. He uses this to skip over all the boring parts. Uh, How he actually fixes the problem. Right, because how he fixes it is a punchline. And it's interesting, it's entertaining, but I wouldn't want to write him going through the process of applying the solution. Which a lot of writers probably would have done, especially back in those days. Yeah, I would have myself. So once in space, he's radioing back to Earth, and he explains that since the paint was made largely of light, he sealed himself into a dark room, which I believe was a fuel tank or something, with a bank of photovoltaic cells. And the photovoltaic cells absorbed the light. Since there is no light coming into the container with him, the paint can't convert it into more paint. And the photovoltaic cells drain the paint of light. It eventually becomes a powder that just falls off. And one bit of trivia, by the way, get popular electronics or popular mechanics from 1945, and there will be a reference to having a photovoltaic cell on your driveway so that when your headlights hit it, your garage door automatically opens for you. Oh, okay, so it transmits an electronic charge. Right, it's telling the electronics, I see light. Whenever I saw those articles, I always thought, well, if anyone actually did that, in the 1950s, I would go around with a flashlight and rob all their garages at night. <laughs> well, I'm sure somebody thought of that. A little bit of story background. It was published in September of 1944 in Astounding Magazine. And believe it or not, it was adapted into a short movie in 2004. Oh. Which I would love to see. I guess with modern special effects, sure. it wouldn't be that hard. Who adapted it, do you know? I did not recognize the names, oh, okay. so I didn't write it down. It did make me wonder if it would have looked a bit like the 1970s, I think, adaptation of The Illustrated Man on TV. Oh, yeah, where the tattoos were moving on his body. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that movie. That was kind of creepy. That was one of the things that attracted me to that movie was the moving tattoos. That was creepy in that never thought of that concept before creepy that hits you when you're a kid right sort of like frankenstein the true story there's a scene in there that haunted me for years as a kid because it just hit me in a funny way when the captain is hauled up to the top of the mast during the lightning storm yeah that's great that was a great scene now it's a great scene it was scary at the time but i was a little kid i think so there are two interesting topics we can talk about So I mentioned John Thomas's cube, and we may do an episode on that. So instead of going to specifics... Just kind of briefly talk about what a perfect item story looks like, structurally what it's typically like. In its purest form, it is absolutely a gimmick story, and is something you write when you don't have any good ideas right now. Well, I've talked about before, and I, I believe in this, that there's a difference between an idea and a premise. In this case, the idea would be, what if there was a can of paint that self-applied itself, and as you said, it spreads evenly, repairs itself, and insulates? What if you had that item? That's the idea. You got the idea of this object. The premise would be, what if this was an intelligence test being used by an alien species? 
that it infected the first person to come in contact with him, and he had to figure out how to pass the test. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's a premise. But it's the kind of premise that you can glue to any idea, really. Sure, you could come up with, you know, 50 different variations of what that test would be. Yeah. Some object you first come into contact. The idea, which is the can of paint that self-applies and is made of light, could be swapped out for 50 different other items that would be used as a test. So... There are some science fiction stories of the age during that period that were little more than an idea. You know, they had like one interesting idea and they examined it and it didn't really go very far beyond that. I'm put in mind of a story where aliens were, it was either thanking or testing a human being by giving him perfect objects. He gets a perfect light bulb that never burns out. He gets a razor that never goes dull, that sort of thing. And part of the gimmick is that he's a human and he's so suspicious of unusual things that when he's shaving with the same blade for like the 10th time, he starts to think, oh, no, you know, there's something funny about this. I mean, what if it just went bad all at once and I could cut myself? So then he ends up throwing it away and putting in a more familiar blade. That's an interesting twist. I like the idea of the skepticism of humans discarding the item. That would be an example of someone encountering a perfect item and their reaction to it. It's not a problem-solving story like can of paint. It's a simple reaction story. How would people react to a perfect object? Another story that comes to mind is The Ring Around the Sun by Cymac. It's a fun little read. I can get you a copy of it. And in it, aliens have come to Earth and are subtly changing our economy by introducing things like everlasting light bulbs and razor blades and automobiles that never need oil changes and things like that. That was a larger plot element in that book. Okay. So that would be an example of a perfect or improved device and how it impacts on society. So you can see here that the starting point of having a perfect or improved item can be written a couple of different ways depending on which direction you go, whether it becomes a problem-solving story, whether it becomes a individual reaction story, or whether it becomes how it influences society. And I think back to the story that we did recently where the aliens put the duplicating machines on Earth and how the manager of a department store reacted to those being on earth and potentially putting his store out of business, but figured out a way to make money off of it. So that's a good example of that sort of thing of a advanced object. Let's just call it an advanced object, not necessarily perfect, and how someone reacts to it. Yeah, that was business as usual during alterations. I forget the author's name. Right. I like to think of the perfect object as a nice gimmick, a nice idea that you set aside. And you can either immediately turn it into a full story like a can of paint. Or you could save it to be a detail in a much bigger story. Like, I have aliens. What's a cool way of having them slowly revealed? Hey, how about they're a company that produces perfect items? That's weird. Yeah. 
So these items are coming out onto the market and a reporter decides to try to find out who's behind the company, you know, and he's the one that discovers that it's a bunch of aliens and they're uh, sending these out to change human society or test human society or whatever it may be. You know, that's a good premise. Playing around with this, talking about it, I kind of like this idea. I wouldn't mind if I had the time to sit down and come up with an object of some kind, some advanced device, and then write three different stories based on that device. The one where it's a problem-solving story. Okay. The one where it's a individual reaction story. Like, let's say somebody's walking through the forest and they find this object, and they're like an illiterate hillbilly or something and they don't have the technical ability to understand it but they can see what it does and how they react to it and then the third one would be how this was introduced into society somehow and how to change society that would be a very fun writing exercise i think oh there's so much you could put in it i don't want to use the word satirical for the 800th time you could take that approach if you wanted like the final story, you could exactly parallel the stories of when the ballpoint pen was first sold in New York. You had crowds and you had lines. It was 20 bucks. That's a great parallel. Basically take that phenomenon and 100 years later, and it's a different device. Suddenly shows up in a department store, you know, like the duplicators in the story of business as usual. This puts me in mind, now this is an aside, we discussed different kinds of alien invasions at one point. Yep. There is the invasion where humans inadvertently are helping. Well, maybe invasion is the wrong word. What about a, a alien infiltration story where they're hidden somewhere within society, they're masquerading as humans perhaps, and they're subtly altering things somehow? I like that idea of an alien infiltration story rather than invasion. Maybe that should be a whole nother episode. I do like the idea of humans assisting the invasion because it's a great deal. It's a pen that never runs out, and it also spies on you, but it's only a dollar. Or subtly changes your DNA somehow. Yes. By, By holding it in your fingers, it subtly alters your DNA. You didn't get the 45 inch twonky, did you? I got the 55. The twonky. There's an obscure reference. Well, they made it into a couple movies? No, it was just the one. Okay. So the other aspect of the story, or rather A.E. Van Vogt's writing strategy, was that he believed in putting a twist or complication in every 800 words. Which, when you described that to me, I immediately thought, that sounds like something that an editor told him once. Early in his career, some guy with a cigar is like, You know, this is a lot of interesting ideas in this story there, uh, buddy, but you need to put a grabber in every 800 words to keep the readers glued to the page. And you know why it's 800 words? Because we do 400 per page. Exactly based on the page turn, exactly. Now, personally, I think that is taken a little too seriously. I mean, I believe he did that, but I think the key is in the words twist or complication. It doesn't necessarily have to be a huge plot change that's chaotic and horrible every three pages. Well, didn't James Blish refer to that as recomplication? Yes, and I was trying to figure out what he meant by that, literally. I think I understand it. So in my Beatnik spy books, at the beginning of the book, there's usually a MacGuffin. And Gunner Quinn has to find the MacGuffin 
And the rest of the book is a chase for the MacGuffin. And it's fairly linear. Basically, the way I wrote these books is I just kept coming up with complications. In my case, it was like every other chapter. So like every other chapter was a new complication that caused him to have to react to it or solve a problem or survive something. And then the outcome of that led to the next chapter, which was transitional. And then another complication followed that. That continued up to the very last final complication, which was the big one that he had to overcome and the climax of the book. So I kind of get that, the idea of continually introducing complications in your narrative to string the reader, I hate to say it, to string the reader along, but also force your characters to have to make choices. And if you're a good writer, that gives you an opportunity to, to reveal character by these choices that they're being forced to make. I was thinking of it more as a way of combating stagnation, writing yourself into a corner until nothing's happening for too long. Well, I've done that. I did that in one of my Beatnik Spy books. I literally put Gunner up on a cliff. He was trapped, and I had no way of knowing how I was going to get him down from there. Eventually, I did figure it out. Can I guess the next chapter started out with, three days later, he was <laughs> no, drinking coffee. I did not take that easy way out. I came up with a way to do it. But like I said, it's an opportunity. Complications don't have to be simply ways to manipulate your reader into continuing the story. It can also be waypoints where you can introduce backstory, for instance. You know, their reaction to a complication brings up a memory of something that was part of their backstory you want to reveal. Or maybe it introduces a new character that is a complication. So I totally get it, what Blish was talking about here. I think it's a good technique. I'm a fan of Van Volk. He's a very entertaining writer. I do like a lot of his short stories. I noticed, by the way, Damon Knight, who I've read his books... I just referred to Damon Knight's writing the short story book. I've got a couple of short stories that I'm working on, and he classified short stories by five different types, which I won't go into here. And I was trying to figure out which of those five types was the story that I was working on. It was very helpful. But he's a little didactic. You know, there's two kinds of how to write writers. There's the didactic ones that are like, here are the rules of writing, and you must follow these rules. They're the only rules there are. And Every story is exactly this or that. And then there's the better writers who are like, well, here's some ideas on how to shape your story. Here's some tools you can use in storytelling. Damon Knight definitely, I think, fell into sort of the didactic camp. I've respected Damon Knight, and I've read his collected essays on science fiction. But he says about Van Vogt's writing strategy... Van Vogt is not a giant as often maintained. He's only a pygmy using a giant typewriter. That's funny. Well, I think it's A, not very meaningful, and B, he's being a dick. He really is. It's very dickish, but it's kind of funny. He's only a pygmy using a giant typewriter. That's hilarious. I think we found a couple other quotes on this writing style, or you found a comparison. Yeah, so when reading about this reminded me of the very famous Lester Dent pulp formula. Now, especially you younger kids out there wouldn't know who Lester Dent is. He's the guy who wrote most of the Doc Savage novels. Those were first published back in the pulps in the 1930s, were very successfully reprinted as paperbacks in the 1960s, 1970s. And Lester Dent had a formula. I believe Michael Moorcock paraphrased it. Split your 6,000-word story up into four 1,500-word parts. Part one, hit your hero with a heap of trouble. 
Part two, double it. Part three, put him in so much trouble there's no way he could possibly ever get out of it. All of your main characters have to be in the first third. All of your main themes and everything else has to be established in the first third, developed in the second third, and resolved in the third third. That was his formula. 6,000 words is not a particularly long story, so that's a lot of action and complications to pack into a short space of time. I believe that the Doc Savage stories were a little longer than 6,000 words, but I'm sure they all follow that formula. And he also added some elements that he said you should always try to include, an unusual murder method, something that the villain is looking for, a unique, unusual location, which the Doc Savage books certainly did. I remember all those great covers by James Bama, the paintings of him in the Arctic or in the jungle or in the underwater and all these different wild locations. And then, of course, you have to have a menace hanging over the hero the whole time. I thought it would be interesting to explain to people who are used to computers in whatever your preferred word processing program is, you're going to have a little readout at some point that says you have written 1,200 words. In the days of typewriters, when you wrote a story, the layout of the story on the page was very precise. Right. As a result, if you followed the formula as you were supposed to, you pretty reliably ended up with 250 words per page. Sounds about right. That's how stories were roughly counted. You would count the number of pages and say, well, it's about 1,500 words. Yeah, so as Mr. Dent was talking about every 1,500 words, then how many pages would that be? Six full pages. So every six pages then with the Lester Dent formula, you have to have a change in the plot where something big happens. For Van Vogt, it would be like every three pages. Yeah. Something like that, which seems seems like a lot. Every three pages, less than a thousand words, you have to make some kind of change or something has to happen. Well, see, the way I look at it is... That seems abrupt to me. It did to me at first as well, but then I started to consider how big a change do you need? It could be a small thing. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a bomb going off. It could be just whatever advances the plot, the phone rings. Yeah, the phone rings. There you go. Because if you had a big plot change every 800 words, it'd be like the TV series 24, where (laughs) there's a constant (laughs) stress. I mean, if you're writing an action book, and again, what he's basically talking about when he says, hit your hero with a heap of trouble, he's talking about complications. Just about every single James Bond movie fits those four points. Yes, Bond movies in particular are very linear, if you think about it. The beginning of the movie, he has his meeting with M where he gets his mission. All he's got is like a couple of clues. We've got this guy down in Jamaica who you need to go talk to. So he gets there and the guy's been murdered. So now he has to investigate the murder. And then he finds one clue that leads to another clue, which leads to another clue. And he just keeps following the trail of clues until he stumbles upon the master plan of the villain. And then once he's figured out what the master plan is, he clumsily throws himself into it and destroys the plan and gets the girl the end. Stay tuned for the next James Bond. But yeah, when you're doing a linear story, like a Doc Savage novel or the James Bond movies, it's all about complications, throwing in complications to your hero to have to overcome or solve in the case of a mystery or a puzzle or a clue. 
or a woman that you need to seduce, perhaps. Yeah. And it seems a little unfair to reduce it to what I call a travelogue plot. A travelogue plot is you're going from here to there to there in a straight line, and you don't have an overarching plot. You just have complications. Right. Like I said before, sometimes it's a simple MacGuffin chase. You know, you've got a thing, you got to find it. And then once you find it, you got to bring it back to civilization or bring it back to headquarters or defuse it or, well, you know, whatever the, it is that you have to do with the thing. Okay, well, do you have any additional thoughts on these writing styles or the story, A Can of Paint? No, just like everything I've read of A. Van Volk, I really enjoyed the story. There's a reason why he was very popular back in the day. He just writes really fun and interesting stories. I was glad to read it. And I think we covered quite a bit of ground in terms of talking about complications and linear plots. I did remember one other thing about A. Van Volt. He was encouraged by John W. Campbell to become a better science fiction writer because Campbell was short on writers during the war. That's right. That's why he was so popular during the 1940s is because there were a lot of other writers that were just not writing at that time. You're right about that. That's correct. I sometimes think of him as being the AAA league writer being brought up to the big leagues. During the war. And had yes. That, yeah. Or the aging football star that couldn't go in the army because his knee injuries <laughs> yeah. and he extended his career, you know, a couple more years and, you know, went into the Hall of Fame based on all these numbers he put up while he's playing against uh, high school kids, high school kids <laughs> or whatever. Well, that's it for episode 45. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Steve Reitze. I'm Patrick Baird. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.